Great. Well, let me add my welcome to Tim's. It's really good to see you all. It's been great to have a load of the uh, people from First Steps joining us as well. In our cafe church, we take a, a week out of our normal uh, series that we're doing as a church, looking at a book in the Bible, and we take one week to look at God, the gospel, and something. Um, so that's what we're doing today. It's a kind of cult- cultural engagement thing. Um, and today we're going to take this topic of God, the gospel, and Google. Um, I haven't cited my stealing of Google's logo there, so that's probably a copyright infringement. Um, so hopefully that Google won't find out, because they've got an awful lot more money than I have. Um, so I'll be bankrupt. Um, so that's our plan. That's what we're going to do today. Um, but I thought we'd start off here. I think it's a good place for us, for us to start today. I want to ask you these two questions. What is culture... And why should we explore it? So, I'm going to give you like a minute or two. Just turn to the people next to you and see if you can come up with like a one or two sentence definition of culture and then maybe a reason or two about why it is a good idea to explore that. So that is, and it might be a tough question. Um, So, have a bit of a think. See if you can come up with some answers. I'll give you like two minutes max. So, go. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump in there, see what I did. There, was. there seems to be a good amount of chatter going on. Um, so, let's take the first question. What is culture? Um, let's have a few ideas off you. Somebody be brave and shout out, or I'll just point at somebody. Um, so, go quick. It's so diverse, it's difficult to give a straight answer. It's the way people live. Great. Any other ideas? What other ideas do we have for what is culture? Similar to what you guys were saying? Style of life, things like that. Great. Yeah, I think that can, there can be a kind of tribalism in culture, can't there? If different people have different ways of expressing culture. Yeah, yeah. we see different beliefs and we see different cultures putting out different foods and stuff like that. So particularly, people might like certain cultures' foods. Yeah. When Hannah's away, I particularly like pizza, Italian. Um, it's not that she doesn't let me have pizza, it's just that it's a lot easier to have it when Hannah's not around. So I get the whole one. Um, anyway, that's entirely beside the point. So, why should we explore culture? That's, actually, no, hang on. I found a quote... Um, from the, the people I'm doing the course with have written, they've written this quote, and I think, like it was said at the beginning, it's too difficult to give you a straight answer because it's so like, complicated and diverse. Um, the quote I came across is, culture is notori- notoriously difficult word to define because it surrounds us and it penetrates us. It's a bit like asking a fish to define water. So that's well, fair enough. So if you struggle with a definition of culture, that's understandable. I'll give you my kind of definition of culture, see if you think it makes sense. You can uh, tell me afterwards if you disagree. So I think culture is kind of a melting pot of ideas and thoughts and media and music and expression and society and economy and politics, all kind of stirred up into a big soup that we spend our lives swimming around. So that's what I kind of thought when I thought of culture. 
So yeah, it's difficult to describe. It's like a fish trying to describe water. We're immersed in it, we're surrounded by it, and we can't live without it. Wherever there are people, there is some kind of culture. So okay, why should we explore it? What ideas did you come up with for that? You didn't get that far. Yeah, so we can understand how other people live. Yeah, rather than just saying that's weird, we can say actually we understand why they do it, why they do what they do. Yeah, is that what you guys were saying there? Yeah, there's some nods going on. As Jen was speaking. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so when you understand why people do things, you can actually kind of get on better because of that. Yeah, great. Nick said it was interesting. It's just interesting to look at it. Yeah, that can be true. Yeah, and Nick's a history teacher, so he's probably got a vested interest in saying it's interesting. Um, yeah, any other ideas? You can always learn from other cultures. Yeah, very true. Okay, so I think there are some really good reasons for us to explore. Uh, our culture. Firstly, I think culture it impacts every aspect of our life, no matter kind of what we're doing. Um, so if it is like a fish and water, we can't go anywhere without culture. Um, and secondly, it, it shapes our thoughts and our values to some extent. We kind of live by certain norms that our culture sets. Um, so it seems to me that it's something that's worth exploring a little bit, um, because if that's the case, we kind of want to know why we think certain things or do certain things. Um, I think I heard somebody down here saying, you know, it's, it's worth just seeing why you do what you do. It's a kind of idea. So this afternoon, we're going to look at this topic of God, the Gospel, and Google, because Google is part of our everyday life. So let's start here with the internet. Now, the internet plays, it plays a massive part in the lives of many, many people uh, in this country and in other countries. So what do you think the average time spent by an adult in the UK on the internet is? That's probably not a very well-worded question. How much time do you think the average adult spends on the internet? That's how I should have worded the question. How many per week? What do we reckon? Shout some answers out. How many hours per week does the average UK adult spend online? 10? 20? 70? 85.3? Pardon? In a week. 35? Interesting. Well, the average adult in the UK spends 17 hours a week online. Which we, we, we thought in the office it's difficult because it's very difficult to work out what that means. Maybe that's actively online rather than it's just online in the background. Uh, to be honest with you, I probably spend on average more time than that online in a week, which is quite scary. But I think that 17 hours on average is quite high, considering that there'll be, like the top, the older generation that spend very little amount of time, a lot of others must be really bringing the average up. So, um, yeah, on average, 17 hours a week. So, but let me say now that I love the internet, okay? So many amazing things on it. Um, you know, with it, we can find out how to help people in other countries where... Like water's scarce, but we can also use it to find out how to kind of find plans for making bombs. We can connect with our friends and family all over the world in an instant, or we can use it to find indecent images of things that support 
um, all sorts of awful industries like women trafficking. We can use it to download great music and films, and we can do that legally by paying for them, or illegally by not paying for them. When it comes to Google, which is kind of the biggest search engine online now, where you just put, you write something in, and it'll sort out all, it'll scour the whole internet and give you a neatly ordered list of everything that, um, that kind of fits the criteria. It's amazing what it can do. At Google, however, won't ever say to you, before you hit the return key to like, bring up the search results, it will never say to you, before you press return, do you think that you should be searching for whatever this is? Or, which you know, maybe what it should say to me is, you've already searched for nine million things today. Is it about time you did something else? Um, but it doesn't ever say that because it's just faithfully searching for stuff. Now, I'm not, don't get me wrong as well, I'm not a Google hater by any means. I love kind of what it is and what it can do. I've got a Gmail account, which is kind of Google's email account. If I want to search the internet, I use Google. If I um, want to find my way somewhere, I use Google Maps. If I want to find a picture of something, I'll use Google Images. Um, if I want to find a video, I'll use YouTube, which I think Google now owns. Um, I've got an Android smartphone, which is powered by Google. Not that they don't make batteries, there's like an operating system. Um, so I haven't actually got a problem with Google. I just want to explore what something like Google can do to us um, because it kind of surrounds us. It's very universal, it's Google. It's actually that universal that we say, I'll Google that. Lisa said it to me as we were chatting before the service. She had no idea that I was going to say, talk about this. She said, I, I Googled that. I thought, well, yeah. It's that universal that we use the company name now as a verb. The Oxford English Dictionary recognises Google as a verb, as a doing word. So I googled that is a perfectly fine, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. I can only think of one other company that has managed that kind of universality. Um, I'm hoping universality is a word in the Oxford English Dictionary now I've said it. Um, do you know what that company is? Hoover is the only one I can think of. Sellotape? Well, maybe. Well done there, sir. But yeah, Hoover is the one I thought of, partly because my grandpa was a biro. But you don't really say I'll biro that. You say I'd write that. But we, we attribute biro to anything, don't we? But my grandpa was a, a vacuum cleaner engineer, and he used to get very frustrated. If he went to somebody's house, they'd rang up and they said, I've got a problem with my Hoover. He'd go around, and it'd turn out that their vacuum cleaner was actually an Electrolux. Is that I've not brought my Electrolux tools. I've brought my Hoover tools because you said you had a problem with your Hoover. So in our house, we were brought up to say vacuum because uh, it wasn't necessarily a Hoover. Anyway, that's again beside the point. So Google is a part of our lives, really. And I guess I could probably Google some of your names and find out stuff about you online, maybe even some videos. I tried it this week. I didn't spend a lot of time on this, but I tried. I Googled Ian Jones, who's... Minister of the Church, his picture was about 30th on the list. Um, he was down there grinning away on the list on um, Google Images. But I think Ian Jones is probably a, a reasonably common name. Um, so I tried the slightly less common name of a member of our church, of Jai Patterson Smith. He's not here today. Um, but when I did that, his face was the first two images, and the third image was an image of one of his sermons that he did at church. So the first image was just of Jai's kind of normal face. The second image was him hugging a TARDIS. Um, 
So, if you, Jai absolutely adores Doctor Who, and it's probably a good thing we're hugging it from the outside because he might not have been able to hug it from the inside because they're so big inside them. Um, so you can use Google for anything. You can use it for good or bad. You can use it for trying to find Jai's space, or you can use it for finding things that are inappropriate as well, like Ian's space. Um, and let me just clarify for you that the Bible was written before the internet was invented. None of the writers in the Bible told us which search engines to use or which email companies we should go with or which well-known auction sites we should use. That's eBay. I love eBay too, but that is for another time. Um, this week I heard this phrase. The internet is a bit like skydiving. With the correct precautions in place, it's a wonderful experience. But without it, it's very dangerous. So what I kind of want to think about is what are the, is the parachute or the safety net that the Bible gives us when we think about uh, the internet and Google. So, I think this works. So, what do they give us? I want to look at three aspects uh, of kind of comparing Google and the Bible. Um, so, I want to suggest that Google offers one thing and that, and that God offers something almost entirely different, that one is more instructive and valuable and authoritative than the other. And it'll probably come as no surprise to you that I think that the Bible should be more important to us than Google. Okay, so here's the first comparison that I want to make. Um, that's not quite true. I'll just go back a slide. Before we do that, I think there are some similarities. So I think we can ask both Google and God big questions, uh, really important ones. Not things like, where's the nearest cheese shop or is there a hedgehog delivery man? Um, but we can ask both Google and God questions like, why on earth am I here? Now, what is life really all about? Is there a God? Is he good? If there is a God, should, should I get to know him? Can I get to know him? We can ask both Google and God questions of eternal significance. So here's the difference, and I think it's quite key. We can ask them both these questions, and Google will provide us with thousands of hours worth of information um, about the question. God is different. He doesn't provide so much just information, but he provides something called revelation. I'd waited it to be much better. I'd come back and uh, it's a shame. So what's the difference? And what does it matter between information and revelation? Well, information kind of provision is a service that allows us to play kind of judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, we look at the different views and thoughts of people who've written their views down for us uh, online, and we get to weigh up the arguments and pick whichever one we find the most compelling. Um, and then we get to choose whether we do or don't do something with that information. All that information puts us at the centre. And we kind of like that. We, we like to feel kind of special and clever and in control. I think the problem with that in that way of thinking is it's totally subjective. So if you like it, you go on and do something about it. If he doesn't like it, he doesn't do something about it. If she likes that bit but not that bit, she goes and does that bit and not that bit. Uh, so this means that with information, we get to kind of play God in our own lives and decide what's good and bad, what's right and wrong. But essentially that's only for me and not for anyone else. Revelation, however, is a whole different kettle of fish. The Bible claims that it is God's revealed word to us. 
Now, that is a massive claim. And we've not got time to go into that today, but if you have questions, do um, ask them afterwards. However, the difference between uh, information we can gather ourselves and what God says, um, his revelation, the difference is massive. So if God truly stands outside of time, if he knows all things, he, if he is the reason that all the things that we can see and can't see exist, then when God speaks to us in his revealed word, he doesn't just speak with a greater authority, but he speaks with the greatest authority. So when God says something about an issue, it isn't just another idea to kind of throw into the pot with millions of others. It is the voice of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God who's saying, I want you to know and understand this so that it will, be, that it will benefit you. Essentially, God's revelation is a kind of trump card. What God says on an issue is the final word about it. We just have to decide whether we like playing God too much in our own lives to lay aside our rule of our own lives and give that to God and take up his rules, his ways, and his leading. We have to decide whether we think God's claims are the best for us. So that's the first one. Information versus revelation. The next one is impersonal versus personal. So this is the second comparison I want to make. And I think this one really is where kind of Christianity makes sense for you or it doesn't. Google does amazing things for us. You know, it's just amazing what it, it can actually do. But when it comes down to it, I think basically what Google is, it is an electronic, web-based, very efficient children's toy. Now, you know the, the, the ones that I mean, the ones that have got, they've got a, a round hole, a square hole, a triangle hole, and a star-shaped hole, and they have the corresponding kind of round, square, triangular, and star-shaped pegs, and the child who's chewing whatever peg it is eventually decides to try and push it through the correct hole. So what Google does is, a bit like the toy, it just filters out the stuff that doesn't fit your criteria. So if you ask a square-shaped question, you get a square-pegged answer, and everything else doesn't come through. Google's brilliant at it, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing thing, but in the end, it's just really a filter. It's very impersonal. God's different, however. When we ask God a question, his response is very different to that of Google's. God's answer to our questions and to practically whatever they are, it's not impersonal, but it's personal. And I don't just mean that it's kind of special to him, but his answer to us is a person. If we want to ask God the big question of suffering, about suffering, the answer that God gives is Jesus. If we want to um, ask what God is like, the answer that God gives is Jesus. If we ask God, how can we get right with him, the answer that he gives is Jesus. But I want to also suggest that that is the absolute best way for anybody to really answer a question. If you ask someone what somebody else is like, you know, they can do all they can to describe them to you. They can give you the colour of their eyes, the colour of their hair, their kind of height, their build. You know, they can get really animated and excited about describing them to you. They could even do an impression of them for you. But that's absolutely nothing in comparison with meeting the person. When God wanted to clearly show the world who he was and what he was like, what he did was he came out of heaven and he met with people. So I want to suggest to you that God is personal 
and self-revealing. And then the last comparison I want to make is this one. Knowledge versus transformation. Now, before I go anywhere else, I don't want to suggest that God is kind of anti, um, anti-knowledge or anti-learning or studying or anything like that. There are books in the Bible devoted entirely to kind of wisdom and understanding. And we're encouraged by God to be students of his word and students of his world. Uh, so for some, that means they'll study all sorts of things. Some people will, as Christians, they'll study like, medical topics. Some will study mechanical topics. Some will study arts topics or practical topics or caring topics or family topics. Learning and knowledge are very important to God. But this is the distinction I want to make. Google allows us to believe that we have the key to answering practically any question in the whole world. We can just Google the answer and find it. We think that if we have an internet connection, we're kind of lacking nothing. However, what happens if you take that internet connection away? Now, I know personally for me, if, um, if I'm not ready for it, and I've kind of not prepared myself for internet connection to be severed, I can go practically insane um, because I have so many things that I look on the internet for or ask the internet all the time. Um, and if the web page that I'm trying to find doesn't appear in the twinkling of an eye, I want to smash my phone or the computer and get a newer, faster, better one. Uh, maybe that's just slightly unbridled rage coming out for you. But Google allows us to think not that we are super intelligent, some of us may be, some of us may, may not be, but that we're able to find out what the kind of super intelligent people think. Therefore, we are pretty much super clever. It inflates our pride a little to think that we can find out anything. It encourages a kind of sense of, I can do anything without the help of somebody else. It gives us a doorway to the knowledge of the world, but not necessarily the wisdom of how to apply that knowledge and do something good with it. So even though I think the Bible promotes uh, studying and learning, God doesn't want us to study the Bible just to fill our heads full of interesting ideas or verses or stories or rules or things like that that the Bible's full of. I think God wants us to read and understand the Bible and to read God's personal revelation to us, not to fill our heads, but he does it to change our hearts. why would or should God go to enormous trouble of revealing himself to the world for the sake of us knowing a few more things? It's basically a bit pointless. God God must, therefore, have a greater reason for it. So I want to finish with this idea of God's bigger plan. So if God is this revealing, personal, transforming God, then what is his big plan And I want to suggest to you that God's big plan is revealing, it's personal, and it's transforming. God created a world where man and God walked together. God revealed himself to the man, and their relationship was a personal one. And the man was uh, was going to grow in the knowledge and understanding of God forever and ever. And he would create a culture into which other people could be born in and brought up in the same way of knowing God and enjoying him forever. However, this isn't the world that we live in. We live in a a broken world, a world where things are wrong, where suffering is commonplace. People die, families break down, and our bodies ache and hurt and slowly decay. Uh, If you didn't know that, then sorry to 
tell you that now. Uh, there is something inside all of us that says that that just isn't right. We know that these things aren't how life is meant to be. And it's into that world that God again reveals himself. He didn't see the mess that we've made of everything and kind of leave us to it. He didn't see the mess that we've made of the world by rejecting and rebelling against him and leave us in that mess. God steps out of the glory of heaven and he comes to earth as a baby. Jesus is God become a man. And we'll celebrate that in, what is it, 40 something days of Christmas? Not long now for you to buy my presents. Um, so Jesus reveals God to the world in flesh. He is God from all eternity, but he walked among his people. He formed real personal relationships with people and he loved and cared for each of them. And then he was taken by the people that he'd made and he was tortured and he was killed on a cross. He was buried in a grave and he was brought back to life by God his Father and he ascended back into heaven. The question you ask yourself after that is why? Why did he do that? Well, I think God personally revealed himself so that people like you and me can be transformed people who have rejected and rebelled against God and instead of listening to him we've listened to ourselves we've been the kind of kings and queens of our own lives and we've not always done a brilliant job the Bible tells us that our rebellion and rejection of God is something called sin but it also tells us that when Jesus died he took on himself the sins of the world on the cross Jesus took the punishment that sin deserves you know, we're, we're all people who have sinned. We're all people who, who've done things wrong. But the Bible also says that we're all born in sin. We can't do anything about the fact uh, that we've sinned ourselves because we're born like that. If we die and meet God, we deserve to be punished for our sins. And God can say that because God will punish sins forever. However, God is transforming in the sense that he wants to transform us, not he is transforming like a transformer into Optimus Prime or anything like that. God wants people like you and me to be transformed by him. The Bible tells us that you know, we've all sinned, but that we can have all of our sins forgiven, whether they're past sins, present sins, or future sins. God can forgive them all. He can destroy them, and he can separate them as far from him as is possible. But God wants to transform people like you and me. He wants to transform sinners who are destined to an eternity of just punishment to people who are adopted into his family that he calls his sons and daughters. Because Jesus has lived a life that we should have lived but didn't. And he died the death that we deserve. And because of that, Jesus is willing to do with you and me the biggest swap ever. I don't know if you were into swaps when you were in school. I could swap anything with anyone and thoroughly enjoyed it. But Jesus says, I've lived the life you should have lived, a life of no, no sin. And I've died the death, the penalty for sin. And I'm willing to swap my life for your life so that you can have the eternity that I deserve and I'll take the punishment that you deserve. 
Not only that, but Jesus will continue to work in each one of us. He'll continue to transform us, to become more like him, uh, to make us more certain of our place in God's family, more loving to other people, more generous to others, more willing to put others first. God wants to make you and me more like Jesus because he is the only good man ever to have lived. God's bigger plan is to bring you and me back to himself because he loves you and me beyond measure. He loves you so much that he will meet you wherever you are. In whatever state you're in, he loves you so much that he will meet you wherever you are, whatever state you're in. But he loves you too much to leave you in that state. He wants to transform you to be more like Jesus. There's a chapter in one of the Gospels in the Bible that describes God's love being like a shepherd searching for a lost sheep. It describes it like a woman who's lost a coin searches absolutely everywhere until she finds it. And then he describes God's love being an an aged father running to meet his lost son. God loves you that much. I want to encourage you to think about what it would mean for you to become part of God's family. Jesus has done all the work for you to join. He just asks you to believe in him. Give him the ruling voice in your life. And enjoy the promise that Jesus made where he said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And that becoming a Christian, you would understand that and grow in that promise forever and ever. So I'll pray and then we'll sing a final song. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you that you are willing in all of your like wonder and amazingness. Father, you are willing to come out of heaven in the person of Jesus, that you came to this world, that you lived a perfect life, you died the death that you didn't deserve. And Father, we thank you that, that Jesus, because he's done that, can offer us forgiveness of sin, eternal life with you, and by your spirit you can transform us to become more and more like Jesus every single day. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that. Father, I pray for um, people who are Christians that they would understand what it means to uh, have life and have it to the full. Father, I pray for people who aren't Christians that they would understand the truth of the gospel and they would desire to put Jesus first and know you and know what it then means to have life and have it to the full. Father, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. You would continue to impress upon us how personal you are and also help us to see that you want to transform us more and more to be like Jesus. And Father, I thank you that you do all these things because you love and care for each one of us. Amen.